It's Friday. It's swelteringly hot. And there's plenty to discuss in the wide world of North Carolina politics. Here we go. I'm Jeff Tiberi. This is the Politics Podcast from WNC. Glad to be back. Glad to be with you as we uh, take a stab at offering some analysis on several topics moving at both your state legislature as well as on Capitol Hill. Here for our discussion are Mitch Kokai with the conservative John Locke Foundation and Rob Schofield from the progressive NC Policy Watch. Hi, guys. Hey, guys. Hey, Jeff. Good to see you. This conversation was recorded Friday morning. Across the state and the country, this week, tens of millions of parents started to receive monthly payments, up to 300 bucks a month per child. This initiative was part of the most recent stimulus bill passed by Congress, and the Biden administration would like to make it permanent. Notably, Columbia University researchers have projected that this aid could reduce child poverty in our country by 45 percent. Mitch, as this program begins, what are you watching for? First of all, I'm watching to see just how well it turns out in terms of meeting the demand that it's designed to meet. Sometimes government programs have really great intentions, and as the program plays out, what what ends up turning out from that program is not exactly what was intended. I think that'll be the, the main thing to watch. The other thing that's important to note is that this is not an entirely new concept. We've had child tax credits in the past. A major difference is the fact that uh, in the past, a lot of them didn't become refundable. So if you didn't have a tax burden, you didn't end up getting any of the benefits from the credits. And so that was one of the problems with it. I think the other thing that I'm going to be watching for is as the debate moves forward about extending this beyond the initial year, Uh, There's been talk about extending it first through 2025 and then essentially making it a permanent change is do the people who support this also win some buy in for having a long term funding source? Because one of the problems we've seen with the federal government is there are a lot of benefits that are in place and we aren't getting the revenue in to pay for them. Uh, People seem to like to have a certain level of government and don't seem to like to pay for it. And we're, we're setting ourselves up for a long-term problem if we don't get a correct match between the amount of money government is spending on various programs and the amount that people are willing to pay in taxation to cover those programs. Rob, what about you? What are you watching for as this? And I'll please push back. I, to me, this is a very significant program, regardless of where you are on the political spectrum. This is a this is a major lift. This is a lot of money, more than one hundred billion dollars per year. So I think it's important that, that we talk about it. And that's why we're talking about it. But, uh, Rob, as this gets going, wh- what are you zoning in on? Well, I mean, I totally agree with you, Jeff, that this is really one of the most important, uh, perhaps the most important policy change that's come out of Washington since the advent of the Biden administration and the new Congress. And we're talking like 39 million households, uh, 88% of the kids in the United States. It's a huge uh, anti-poverty program, the most ambitious anti-poverty initiative of the federal government, maybe in, in, 
clearly in decades. And so it's an enormously positive development. I think it's going to be very popular. I think we should look for things like there are studies that have already shown that when you raise family income for low-income people, it provides additional stability for them in, in remaining in their homes. We actually see student test scores rise when you see increases in food security for low-income people. So I think we should look to see those kinds of things. I think researchers will find them. I think it's very likely that will be the case. This is the kind of basic safety net protections we should have been featuring in our economy for really for for decades in America. And we'd sort of abandon our commitment to these kinds of things. I quite agree with Mitch that we need to match federal revenue to pay for these kinds of programs. I think it's quite within our power to do that if we merely just repealed some of the absurd tax cuts enacted by the Trump administration and the giveaways to large corporations and the top 1% who continue to see their, their wealth and incomes just soar to astronomical levels. If we just bring that a little bit under control, which I think President Biden is trying to do, we could easily pay for this and indeed take more ambitious uh, steps to address poverty in this country and bring some measure of balance to our real, to our economy and to our um, wealth uh, structure in this nation that's really gotten out of whack. So an enormously positive development. I think we'll see great positive impacts in the years to come. Quick, quick follow-up before we move on. Uh, for you, Mitch, Rob, feel free to jump in if you want. It would seem to me for uh, what my money, for what I've read, what I've what I've heard, what I've seen, there's been limited kind of outward opposition to this program thus far. Uh, are, are you generally in support of it? The general concept makes a lot of sense. I mean, I, I think the main concern you're going to hear from conservatives and Republicans is unintended consequences. Look back at all of the major programs that the federal government has decided to put in place to help improve the safety net, and you've seen that the that the main drawback to them has been unintended consequences, whether it's splitting up families because it makes more sense for a single parent to, to, to get money for, for a particular government program or uh, keeping people in long-term dependency rather than encouraging them to get back to work. So that's going to be the type of thing that's going to really raise red flags for folks on the right side of the spectrum is does the program, as it plays out, end up leading to unintended consequences that discourage people from uh, getting jobs or getting better jobs? Now, it, 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 I'm not going to go into this saying that that is going to happen, but that's something that you have to watch out for because government programs, as well intended as they are, often lead to unintended consequences and sometimes consequences that can be just as major and just as impactful as the initial plan. So I think that's that's going to be where you're going to hear some of the opposition. I will say, though, that the idea of giving people money or allowing them to deduct from their tax burden because they have children is something that a lot of folks on the right of the political spectrum think is a great idea. I mean, you are, by having children, investing in the future of the society. And so uh, allowing people to offset some of the money that they have to spend to raise children because it is an expensive thing to do makes sense. I think people uh, on the right side of the spectrum much prefer having a child tax credit to having a child care credit, which rewards particular type of behavior rather than just saying you have kids we know you have expenses from having kids 
here is some relief. I got to respond to the old canard that this somehow is going to discourage people from working. This is the same old uh, line we hear time and time again, that people don't want to work, they're too lazy to work, and that they get a few hundred dollars in food stamps or SNAP benefits or a child tax credit that they're just going to sit home and, you know, uh, watch television all day and they don't want to work. That's just preposterous. The studies confirm people do want to work. They want to work at a living wage. They want it to be worth their time to go to work. They want to have benefits. They want to have time off. They want to have the things that most uh, middle and uh, upper middle class people take for granted in the workplace. But the notion that somehow this is going to discourage Americans from wanting to go out and participate in the economy, I think, is is completely specious. And I, I'm sure we'll hear that raised. We hear that raised all the time by folks on the right, but I don't think there's anything to it. And I think we'll, that will be proved out in the, in the data and the statistics that come, uh, that, we, that we see as a result of the enactment of this credit. All right, let's move on to culture wars, specifically critical race theory and affirmative action. Republican Senate leader Phil Berger wants approval of legislation, also a constitutional amendment to prevent schools from indoctrinating students with critical race theory concepts. Similar bills have popped up really all over the country. Rob, is there any evidence of this being a problem at school districts in our state? No, of course not. We all know what this is about. This is a, this is a, uh, a well, or a, I guess, cynically conceived plan by conservatives across the nation over the last few months who are losing the debate on so many issues, they got to find something to sort of stoke white rage and white insecurity, insecurity of white voters going into the 2022 election. So they've manufactured out of whole cloth this notion that there's some sort of diabolical conspiracy to indoctrinate children and make white kids feel bad in the public schools about the nation's racist history. Um, you know, critical race theory is an, is a sort of obscure academic topic that's been discussed for some time in graduate schools. It's not something being taught in public schools. It's not something anybody plans to teach in public schools. And the notion that we need a constitutional amendment or statutes from the General Assembly to micromanage the history curricula in our K-12 through schools uh, on issues like this is just preposterous. We've had teacher after teacher speak up and say, how do you even teach the history of uh, Amer- teach American history without focusing on race. Of course we have to focus on race. We have to focus on the legacy of racism in this country. And for many, many years in this state and around the country, we've done a terrible job of that. Lots of important topics uh, related to race and racism and its uh, uh, impacts on our society have been ignored. Uh, there was a time not that long ago in, the, in North Carolina in which the Ku Klux Klan was portrayed favorably and it was th- that they were portrayed favorably in their uh, 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 intervention in the 1898 uh, white supremacist takeover in Wilmington, things like that. So we need an honest uh, accounting and an honest examination of our history. This, this manufactured ar- argument about critical race theory is preposterous and embarrassing, and Senator Berger and the others who are promoting it ought to be embarrassed. Mitch, I'll have a follow-up. But, uh, but Rob, Rob had a lot, a lot to say there. What, what would you say in reply to that? Well, I, I think there's one piece in which he's right, and that is the fact that uh, there has been a national campaign to try to stamp out the impact of critical race theory in schools. And I think uh, the, the critics are correct, the critics against the, the legislation are correct when they note that it's very unlikely that critical race theory itself is taught in public schools. It is something that's a 
higher education discipline. I don't think it's as as obscure as Rob would suggest, because we are seeing that uh, a lot of discussion about critical race theory has come about, and you see that it is part of the education graduate school, basically basic training for, for many students. So critical race theory as CRT itself, I doubt is taught anywhere in in the public schools because it would not be part of, of any part of the standard course of curriculum. Well, and I guess I would only note, and I've heard some critics say this week, solution in search of problem. Uh, not my words, but I've heard that from some folks. Mitch, let me ask you this kind of a, just a broad question, quick follow-up on your position as a conservative, as somebody who generally likes deregulation. Uh, this is, and Rob used the word micromanagement. I mean, this this is this is not uh, this is not small government. As a conservative, do you have concerns over a state body, a state legislative body? Uh, taking this much attention with such a relatively small policy issue. I would have a problem with state government micromanaging day-to-day action in the local school system. I think that we have seen that happen in certain areas, and it it tends to turn out poorly. I think for the purposes of this bill, as I mentioned, actually read the bill, sort of set aside all of the political debate from one side or the other, and I think almost everyone would agree, it sounds as if even Rob agrees, though he doesn't like the bill, that public schools shouldn't be promoting things like one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. There are, as I said, 13 things in here, all of which seem to be fairly unobjectionable. They shouldn't be happening in the schools now. I hope they aren't happening in the schools now. If the, the General Assembly passes this bill, and I'm not entirely certain that it'll get through the General Assembly. I'm guessing if it does, it might face some problems with Governor Cooper. But if this became law, I doubt there would be much change at all in the way things operate in the schools. In fact, one of the interesting uh, exchanges about this bill when it was initially in committee was uh, one of the Democratic senators asked Senator Berger, If this bill passes, does this mean you can't talk about slavery or Jim Crow? And he said, no, it doesn't have anything to do with that. There's still going to be discussion about these issues. She thanked him and then read a prepared statement that basically suggested that he had just answered the question the other way, that this would stop the teaching of slavery and Jim Crow. Well, you just need to point out that we are in this moment in which we face all these enormous challenges as a state, as a nation. We've got a global pandemic. We've got a climate emergency. We've got yawning gaps between the haves and the have-nots. And this this notion that we have to have this massive debate about this topic – it's about more than this bill, obviously. The right has taken this issue and tried to uh, – it's, it's populated all of their talk radio shows. They're telling all these crazy stories about all these children who are supposedly being harmed by this uh, theory that isn't actually even being taught in the school. So the notion that this is all just about this little bill that's being pursued by Senator Berger, the man gave a, a big speech about the topic and, and, and is talking about things like constitutional amendments that have to do with – uh, racial equity in our state. So it's it's a lot more than the terms of this individual bill. And I, I go back to my point that I think this is what this is really about is a very cynical political effort to try and find an issue that will mobilize and anger white voters in the 2022 election and to talk 
uh, about history in our state in a different way and to, and to, and to sanitize, quite frankly, a lot of the, the, the uh, dark aspects of our history in this state. And that's something, not a direction we need to go. And I hope very much that this will be seen for what it is as, uh, as we go forward. The, the one caveat that I would add on this is that uh, Rob keeps talking about white rage and uh, getting white voters out to the polls. We should note that probably the most vocal person to speak on this bill, other than Senator Berger, has been Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, the state's first African-American lieutenant governor. Finally, cannabis. Next week, a legislative committee is scheduled to debate a bill that would legalize medical marijuana in our state. This bill is sponsored by two of the most powerful Senate Republicans, signaling that it seems to have a strong chance of moving through at least one chamber. The bill would make the treatment legally available to only a narrow set of patients. North Carolina is one of 18 states where medical marijuana remains prohibited. Mitch, what concerns, if any, do you have over the legislation as presently written? I'm not necessarily concerned about the legislation as written. I mean, basically, this is a policy choice. Do you decide that North Carolina is going to join the many states that have medical marijuana or not? Uh, One thing that I would note is that this is being sold to the skeptical uh, within the General Assembly as being one of the most tightly written bills of its type and that it would have all kinds of restrictions. I would take that with a grain of salt. Uh, This is, uh, across the country, an industry, a a quickly growing industry with a lot of money behind it. And once it gets in uh, a foothold, into North Carolina with with some degree of legality, you're going to see a push toward uh, loosening the restrictions on medical marijuana and eventually getting to the point where recreational marijuana is also legalized. Uh, there are going to be a lot of people on uh, all sides of the political spectrum who will say, yes, go ahead and do that. But don't walk into this process saying that, oh, we're going to have medical marijuana, but it's going to be more tightly controlled than anywhere else in the country. That basically is just getting the the foot in the door for an industry that would like to see uh, marijuana legalized in North Carolina as it is in a number of, of other states. Well, I, I, I may agree with some of what Misha said. I, I think it's a good start, obviously. It's clear that the bill doesn't go far enough in listing health conditions for which it could be prescribed, mental health, depression, addiction to opioids. Those are the kinds of things where it's proven very successful in other places. But of course, medical marijuana remains sort of an elitist concept. We have hundreds of thousands of North Carolinians, largely because we won't expand Medicaid, who don't have access to a doctor, who don't have access to health care, who don't have someone they can go to to get a prescription, who don't have care when they're dying of cancer, uh, to go get to, to, to go obtain this substance. And, um, you know, it's just sort of silly that we're going to have people getting access to it and using it in that way, while other people who get it not through a prescription process, perhaps the exact same amounts of this substance that is generally recognized across the country now as, as, t- as something we don't want to criminalize, and that they might still go to jail for it. It's crazy that we have people going to jail for possession of marijuana in this state, um, Senator Schumer in Washington just proposed national legalization. I think that's the, I agree with Mitch, I think it's the direction we're actually headed. Virginia now, it's fully legal, just a few miles away across the border. It's hard to see how we're going to resist this tide much longer. I suppose in that respect, it's inevitable. This is probably a good start, but in my judgment, it ought to go a lot further. It's it's clearly time to have full uh, recreational legalization across the country. Quick 
prognostication caps, how far do you think this bill goes? You know, it seems to me like a long shot still, although I guess maybe we're in, we now have permanent legislative sessions. We are in the middle of July. This would be a time when we would have ordinarily have wrapped up the session or be about to wrap up. And here's a bill that hasn't even passed one house yet. So still looks, sounds to me like an uphill fight, but Sometimes, you know, once things get a, a little breakthrough, they can happen very quickly. It's not impossible. It still seems like an uphill battle to me. To me, the most interesting thing to watch will be if this bill gets through the Senate, does the House treat it on its own merits or does it look at this bill and say the powerful rules chairman and the Senate majority leader really like this bill should we hold this hostage so we can get something that we like and that this ends up in the legislative horse trading that takes place at the end of the session? That'll be the part to watch. If the end of the session ever comes. <laughs> it will, Rob. December 31st, yeah. 2022. That is the end of this legislative session. Good and I would only note that for me, I'm, I'm also interested to see if this bill makes it over to the House, if the House is to amend the bill and add, uh, I guess, a loosening of some of this medical marijuana restriction so that people with, say, depression or glaucoma, chronic pain or arthritis, some of these conditions that are not presently included in the bill, if the House were to add those, the bill then would go to conference committee reconciliation, if you will. And again, to your point, Mitch, that is where it, it may very well die, depending on um, what the House would like to receive back from the Senate. So uh, an interesting debate, and we'll see if it if it actually progresses here in the weeks ahead. Rob Schofield is director of NC Policy Watch. Mitch Koka is senior political analyst at the John Locke Foundation. Enjoy your weekends. Thanks, guys. Thank see you, ya. gentlemen. Thank you for listening and engaging with the Politics Podcast here on WUNC. Don't forget, Tested drops three times a week. There's also Embodied, Dating While Gray, other fine offerings from the WUNC arsenal of on-demand audio listening. I'm Jeff Tiberi. We'll talk to you again soon. I'm on paternity leave here and there, so uh, it'll be a few weeks before you hear my voice again. But take care. We'll talk to you soon. Say W-U-N-C. W-N-N-T-U-C. Say W. W. U-N-C. U-N-C. Bye.